It's Philosophy Talk. Forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. Most of us can forgive and forget. We just don't want the other person to forget that we forgave. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. The next one is dedicated to Rachel from Ross. Rachel, he wants you to know he's deeply sorry for what he did, and he hopes you can find it in your heart to forgive him. Forgiveness as the key to a good marriage. Forgiveness as the key to reconciliation. Forgiveness as the key to salvation. Forgiveness as the key to recovery and healing. A rainbow nation starts here. Reconciliation starts here. Are there wrongs that can never be forgiven? Our guest is Paul Hughes from the University of Michigan, Dearborn. Forgive and forget. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that begin down the road at Stanford University. There at Philosophy Corner is the philosophy department where Ken and I are professors. And our conversation today is about forgiving and forgetting. Never forget, Ken. Never forget. But forgive. That's often a good thing. It's in a, a, a different thing entirely than forgetting. When somebody wrongs us, negative emotions can eat away at us. They may do more harm than the original transgression. If we let go of our anger and resentment, we experience healing and reconciliation. Those are good things. That all sounds very good, John. But, you know, sometimes forgiving, I don't think it's called for. I mean, suppose somebody does me some terrible wrong and, and is totally unrepentant about it. Why should I forgive that kind of person? Well, maybe you shouldn't. But when you forgive, you don't do it for their sake. You do it for your own sake for the sake of your own mental health. But letting go of my anger and all that won't do me any good if the person is just going to turn around and do it again. I mean, unless they do something to really deserve my forgiveness, I'd be a fool to forgive them. Well, I'm not denying that. There are times when you shouldn't forgive. Sometimes forgiveness would be so totally self-defeating. And sometimes it it wouldn't do anything for your long-term mental health. So you agree with me that uh, forgiveness is sometimes just undeserved? Well, not quite, because I don't think it's really a matter of what someone deserves. It's not a matter of dessert. It's It's a gift. There's nothing a person can do to deserve forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift by the person that was transgressed. It has to be freely given. You're never morally required to forgive. Never? Really? I'm not quite sure I agree with that. Imagine a person who is fully (laughs) repentant. They've resolved never to do the wrong thing again. They've done everything possible to make up for their transgression. What more could you ask? Why shouldn't you? Why wouldn't you forgive such a person? Well, maybe you should forgive in that situation. But my point is, to repeat, don't do it for their sake. Do it for your own sake. If they've come that far, your anger's not doing you much good anymore, is it? Yeah, but it's not just a matter of you. I mean, we criticize people for being too unforgiving. I mean, if you can't bring yourself to forgive somebody who's fully and sincerely repentant, I I think there's something wrong with you. And and doesn't that right there show that forgiveness is sometimes the morally right thing, the morally required thing? Well, I don't think it shows that. Getting to the point of forgiveness can be really hard. If you can't get there on your own, maybe you need some help. You need a therapist. 
But being unable to forgive isn't a moral failing. You shouldn't blame people who can't forgive. Maybe you should console them or get them some help. But uh, it's not a matter of blame. I'm still not convinced. Look, suppose somebody does something terrible to me. Maybe they betray my deepest confidences, right? And I'm all upset. But, you know, they're repentant and they're trying to make it up to me, set everything right. And all my friends are convinced that he should be forgiven. Maybe they have forgiven him. I'm the last holdout. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I just don't get this set up. You're making an assumption that seems unjustified. Well, look, all I'm assuming is that my friends care about me, that they're upset on my behalf, but they've moved on. They've already forgiven the person. They're just trying to get me to come along, too, and do the right thing. Well, now I see what I don't like about this scenario. It doesn't seem to me to make any sense because, in what I mean, how can your friends forgive on your behalf? Only you can forgive someone who has wronged you. I don't know about that, John. Suppose somebody does something, murders my brother. He's dead. He's long gone. He's in no position to forgive. But can't I forgive the murderer on behalf of my brother? No. You can forgive the murderer for what he did to you, depriving you of your beloved brother. But I don't see how you can forgive him for what he did to your brother, only your brother could do that. But what was the thing about self-forgiveness, where, where you've done something wrong to somebody else, okay? You've done something wrong, and they won't forgive you. Now, but you feel the, a sense of guilt and remorse. It's way out of proportion to the harm you actually caused them. Your guilt and remorse are eating you up, despite the fact that they won't forgive you. It can be a healthy thing to forgive yourself, to let go and move on. Don't, don't you agree with that? Maybe it's uh, healthy to let go and move on, but I'm not sure it's self-forgiveness. It's not like you can say, oh, I murdered your brother. I know you can't forgive me. But I forgive myself, so everything is fine. The slate is wiped clean. <laughs> I see your point. That makes, you know, forgiveness is a tricky thing. And there are lots of questions here to sink our teeth into. To start with, exactly what is forgiveness? Can forgiveness ever be morally deserved, or must it always be freely given? When is it wrong to forgive? Are there wrongs that can never be forgiven? And what about self-forgiveness or forgiving someone on behalf of another? Do these ideas even make sense? We're going to start, however, with a story from our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch. We sent her out to learn more about the emotional journey you sometimes have to travel to reach the point of forgiveness. She files this report. Forgive and forget, we're told. But what is true forgiveness? True forgiveness would be letting go but I think it's hard for anyone to do that. Forgiveness is a thing you can either do for yourself based on things that have been done to you or something that you give to somebody else who's done something that makes them feel less. But are some acts so heinous that they're beyond forgiveness? Yeah, you can wrong someone so terribly that it's impossible to let it go. And it may be a gradual many wrongings that would really hurt someone so much that it's impossible to forgive them. There is such a thing as like unbelievable, cruel, like evil behavior. Well, it was New Year's morning and um, I just kind of puttering around and drinking massive amounts of coffee from the night before. You know, the phone rings and it's my brother and I could tell he was really upset. Everett Worthington is a psychology professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Fifteen years ago, his brother Mike called with some bad news. His voice was quivering and he, he said, well, something terrible has happened. You know, mom's been murdered. I, I went over to wish her Happy New Year and took my son, my 10-year-old son. I let myself in with my key and, you know, there was just blood all over the walls and 
I, I looked down at the end of the hall and her body was laying there and I covered my son's eyes and just took him out and called the police. Worthington's mother was murdered at her home in Knoxville, Tennessee, in a burglary gone awry. A young man broke into the dark house with a crowbar. Worthington's mother was brutally attacked. And he was very angry, and he, you know, had um, assaulted her sexually with a wine bottle and, you know, then had run around through the house, apparently, and, and broken all of the mirrors in the house. He was very guilty, could not look at himself in the mirror. As Worthington learned the gory details of his mother's painful death, he recalls first feeling rage. And I remember getting really angry and and just uh, pointing to a baseball bat against the wall and saying, I, I wish whoever did that were here. I, I would just beat his brains out. But within a day, Worthington did something incredible. He forgave. He says in fantasizing about killing his mother's killer, he was forced to confront himself. So whose heart is darker? This kid with the impulse control problem? You know, who's afraid he's gonna to go to jail? Who's angry that his perfect crime has been messed up? Or, or this psychologist who studied forgiveness for years and years and years, who's done marriage counseling, who's told other people how to forgive, but who's willing after a day of thinking about this to take a baseball bat and hit somebody in the head until he dies. And I thought, well, my heart is darker than his heart. Worthington is a Christian, and having studied forgiveness for almost a decade, he was well positioned to forgive. But that doesn't mean it was easy. Worthington says it takes a lot of empathy, altruism, and commitment. For Worthington, forgiveness is something that happens inside of us. It doesn't mean you can't hold a person accountable for the injury, but you can free yourself from letting the injury sting indefinitely. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Caitlin Esch with a story of murder, mayhem, and forgiveness. I'm John Perry. With me is Ken Taylor. And we're talking about forgiveness. Our guest today is Paul Hughes. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan Dearborn, and he's author of What is Involved in Forgiving. Paul, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Well, thank you. So, Paul, what, what first drew you to the topic of forgiveness? Are you a guy that people have to do a lot of forgiving for, or what's the deal? <laughs> no, it's actually a quite pedestrian experience. I had, uh, in, early in my career, I had a falling out with a friend, and I was in Boston at the time, but living in uh, Michigan, and I had 800 miles or so to think about whether this was a reparable uh, relationship, and I felt victimized and spent all that time driving, thinking about what's involved in forgiving, which, of course, then morphed into this paper called What is Involved in Forgiving?, and that's really how it started. And uh, I've been fascinated with the topic since. Many people have written on the topic, many philosophers, and there's a large body of literature out there now, uh, 20, 20 or so years later. Well, you're, you're the man who's written the encyclopedia article on forgiveness, at least the article in the Stanford Encyclopedia, I think. So why that's don't you correct. give us your working definition of forgiveness? Well, forgiving is, I think, a number of things. Uh, in the event of significant wrongs, I believe it's the successful process of overcoming hurt or angry feelings that have been caused by and directed at the person or the group who, who did you wrong. But since wrongdoing runs a gamut from relatively trivial to catastrophic, forgiveness is also someti sometimes nothing more than saying the words, I forgive you, or forget about it. And if forgiveness has a political application, 
It may refer to efforts to bring closure to the perpetrators and victims of large-scale injustices such as ethnic cleansing or discriminatory legal regimes such as the apartheid of pre-democracy South Africa. Paul, Paul okay, so you're, you're focused. I didn't quite get a definition out of that, but... It sounds like you're kind of focused on the overcoming, you know, of the, the hurt feelings, the wrong feelings, you know, in these different kind of contexts. And it sounds like you, there are different kind of contexts in which you might forgive. But it's forgiving just about, John said in our opening, forgiving is about you. It's kind of a self-directed thing. You let go of these negative emotions kind of for your own benefit. What about the forgivee, the person who is forgiven? Does the definition have to evolve anything about your attitude toward that person in particular? Well, I think, you know, with, if it's interpersonal forgiveness is the paradigm case that we're talking about here, then if you've been wronged by somebody you know uh, and, and you're angry, and typically it's anger that, that people uh, focus on as the emotion that needs to be transcended or overcome, then it does involve the other person in as much as they've wronged you and you're trying to get past that. But if you're in a relationship that you hope to mend, then it also is aimed at restoring that relationship with the other person. So, is forgive- so I think it has benefits for, for the forgiver as well as the forgivee. When you forgive somebody something, do you, I mean, there are different kinds of attitudes you can have. You could excuse what they did. You could condone what they did. I mean, what is your, is it like, is forgiving like condoning? Is it like excusing? What, 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 what is the difference between forgiving an offense and condoning or excusing an, an offense? Well, I think condoning an offense is a way of tolerating it and turning, and turning it into something that you don't actually believe is wrong. That's one way of condoning a wrong or sort of rationalizing that somehow it wasn't really wrong. Uh, and I think of condoning as a species of tolerating. I don't think forgiveness does that. Forgiveness is a way of acknowledging a wrong and attempting to move past it. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I think you know when it's a significant wrong, it involves a process of overcoming negative emotions. Uh, but it, not all wrongs are, are that significant. So sometimes just an action uh, you know, sending somebody flowers is show, or uh, saying for, forget about it uh, well, does all well, the work that needs to be done. We have this uh, one use that's fairly clear. That's forgiving a debt. If I forgive you you a, a debt to me, I mean an economic debt, then you don't have to pay me back. Uh, is, is that just a one-off use or is that kind of get at the core of what's involved in forgiveness? Well, I think that that's a, a good example of forgiveness as an action, waiving a debt. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily or maybe even typically involve overcoming any negative emotional states whatsoever. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're talking about forgiveness with Paul Hughes, author of What is Involved in Forgiving? We're going to dig deeper when we come back. Who can forgive? Can forgiveness ever be deserved? Is forgiveness a gift that has to be freely given? Can we forgive on behalf of another? And what about the idea of forgiving yourself? I do that all the time, but does it really make any sense? Exploring the nature of forgiveness when Philosophy Talk continues. Sweet forgiveness. And that's what we're talking about today. Forgiveness. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. 
Our guest is Paul Hughes. He's from the University of Michigan, Dearborn. So, Paul, I want to ask you a bit about the question of uh, moral desert, whether forgiveness can ever be deserved and morally required. Uh, John said it couldn't, but I'm not so sure. So I want your intuitions about this. Somebody has done something terribly wrong to me. Okay, but he's fully repentant. He's resolved. He's really resolved not to do it again. He's actually taken real steps to do everything possible to make things right. Doesn't he morally deserve to be forgiven? Yeah, well, my view is is that forgiveness is a matter of choice, and it's more like a gift that's freely given as a matter of an act of will on the part of the person who's been wronged. I agree with you. I think that part of your concern is that if somebody has atoned for a wrong and done all the work necessary to be forgiven, it would be stingy not to forgive the person. Uh, but I don't think that forgiveness is a matter of justice, and therefore I don't think it's a matter of deservingness. I think it's much more a matter of the uh, choice of, on the part of the person wronged. And partly I think that because if it's a significant wrong, only the person who's been wronged can engage in the work of trying to forgive. I can agree that only the person who engaged in the, who's been wrong can engage in the work of trying to forgive. But a person who's done the wrong, look, you can, I've done some wrong, and I, and I realize I feel guilty, and I do everything possible, everything within my power to really make up for it. Suppose I do make up for it. Then what call do you, what, what grounds do you have for withholding forgiveness? If it's a choice, it's not just a uh, uh, an arbitrary choice. There must be some grounds for the choice. So what grounds would you have if I've done everything in my power to actually make up? Maybe I can't make up, but suppose I can't. What grounds would you have for an, uh, withholding forgiveness? Well, in a way, I think you've answered your own question. That I mean, the, the effort of, of will to try to forgive may fail. And if the person simply can't get past the wrong, there's no, no, not much sense in talking about the, the uh, potential forgivee being entitled to be forgiven. Um, the the person simply cannot get past it, and you think, so are you, is uh, that because you think ought implies can? I mean, if I'm psychologically unable to forgive you, then that doesn't mean that I'm required to forgive you. Is that what you think? That, that's exactly that's exactly the background assumption I'm making. So suppose uh, you know I step on somebody's toe, and it hurts physically hurts. Well, uh, I may do everything possible uh, to help them not be in pain, but they may still be in pain. So. Uh, I think maybe I'm inclined to agree with Paul. I mean, if the person isn't in a position to forgive because it still hurts too much and they can't make themselves do it, that's a fact about them. Uh, I don't know that anything I as a transgressor can do can make it so that they've wronged me by not forgiving me any more than it's the person's fault that his toe still hurts, even though I've, you know, bent over backwards to ameliorate the problem. Suppose I, 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 take, the, I take the point you're making, but suppose I give the person aspirin. Suppose I <laughs> give them surgery. Suppose I pay them back. Uh, suppose I do, you know, and they're still like, they're so, I mean, anger can be, if, forgive, if, if uh, the, re, the resentment is a kind of moral anger and has a basis, the ang- can't the anger be... Uh, Required to be dissipated by the re- revised moral facts? I, I don't see why you think there's nothing the perpetrator can do to revise the moral landscape in a way that makes the anger no longer 
appropriate. Let's put it that way. No, the anger is no longer appropriate. Even if you can't get past it, it's still no longer appropriate. Well, I, I think it. I think it can be inappropriate, as I mentioned. I think it's a very stingy thing to do if somebody's wronged you and they've gone through to all of this trouble to either make amends or or compensate you for the wrong, and you and you, as it were, nurture your anger and you and you use withholding forgiveness as a kind of weapon against them. I, I do think that there's some uh, moral. Uh, blameworthiness there, but I don't think that translates into a desert on the part of the person, of the potential forgiver. So you, so you see these two realms. One is a realm of justice, has to do with desert, has to do with what's morally required, um, and the other is something more like uh, emotion management. Uh, and it, it's a, as, as I'm getting it, it, it's just kind of a different subject. Is that right? And can you tell us a little more about how you think of it? Yeah, I, I think I think of uh, forgiveness as being more like, say, charity, which is uh, an optional duty. If you want to talk of it in terms of duties, that if we have a duty to be charitable, it seems we have some discretion over uh, whom to be charitable towards and to what extent, and that's uh, that's the prerogative of the individual. Uh, and I think that gives a kind of latitude to the person who's been wronged or who's thinking about being charitable to decide for him or herself whether to engage in this in this moral uh, phenomenon towards somebody else. Uh, okay, and, and I take your point. Now, I want to pressure you on something else that I, you said in one of your writings. Maybe this is right. I don't know. My intuition's just uh, boggled a little bit. You say that forgiveness, unlike, say, pardoning, say, is compatible, or condoning, you say that forgiveness is compatible with punishing the wrongdoer still, right? And that seemed to me a little odd. I'm punish. I forgive you, but I'm still going to put you to death. I forgive you, but I'm still going to put you in prison for 10 years. That seems a little odd. And what, what does your, I'm the victim, You say, I'm the wrongdoer, you say you forgive me, but you still hold me to account in the ways that you would hold me to account, absence of forgiveness. I don't know what your forgiveness consists in for me. Then. Yeah, I think I think maybe a better example of that would be a parent forgiving a child for some wrongdoing, and yet punishing the t- child so the child learns a lesson. Uh, you know, I don't know how easily that translates to say criminal punishment and those sorts of contexts, but uh, certainly within the realm of domestic relations, that I think the consistency of punishing and forgiving can be easily seen in that kind of an example. But in the kind of examples I said, you don't think it can be so easily. Uh, scene. So well, is it, it's kind of complicated. Is that what you're telling me? Well, it, it is a bit more complicated, but I do think that there's they're, they're consistent. We punish people, at least in theory, by sending them to prison for committing crimes. And of course, it's a complicated theory of, of rehabilitation, uh, retributive punishment, what we're doing when we put people behind bars. But there's at least some thought that, that uh, this is perfectly consistent with with forgiving them, at least on the, the, the victims might forgive them. Uh, it's an entirely different thing, I think, when the state pardons people. I don't think of that as an instance of forgiveness at all. Uh, I, see, I think I get part of what I think is going on with your view, I think. Tell me if I've got this right or wrong. I think you're really focused on the emotional letting go, right? The letting go of the moral anger, as you put it in, in some of your writings, right? You can let go of the moral anger, but still want to hold them to account in some ways. Other people, and I think my intuitions go with him, think that forgiving isn't just letting go of the emotional state. It's it's re-altering the moral landscape between you and that person so that you invite reconciliation, repair relationships, and that doesn't quite seem quite compatible with, so easily compatible with, uh, with uh, punishment. I mean, it might, yeah, I, it might be some steps that the person is required to, 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 to make the restoration 
you know, permissible. And so serving some time may be, may be part of it, but that's on the road to restoration. Uh, what do you think? Well, yeah, but I don't, I don't see punishment as not also being on the, the road to restoration. Punishment is not uh, infinite. I mean, it's, punishment is a, a specific uh, a negative sanction for a particular action. And if, if the point of it is partly to teach somebody a lesson or to uh, have them think more carefully down the road about whether to commit that sort of act again, then I, I see that you know certainly relationships can be restored or or continued uh, even in the presence of appropriate punishment. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about forgiving and forgetting with Paul Hughes from the University of Michigan Dearborn, and we've got Alex in uh, Pacifica on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Alex. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I just wanted to, for my own sake, and I think on behalf of others. I personally have came to a conclusion recently where I never forgive and I never forget. <laughs> and know. the reason I say this, if, if I can go on a little bit further, is um, I know if, if a person intentionally is doing something with, you know, I had to get redundant, with the intent to undermine, disturb, uh, taunt, they they know what, why they're doing it, and it's a deliberate act, and they have to accept and be accountable for what they do. So by forgiving people, you don't I'll allow the opportunity to prevent this kind of behavior from happening, which means the individual who is doing these kind of activities has to be able to deal with their own mental dysfunction, and it can't be pointed out when you're in the mode of forgiving people. It's like saying, you taunted me, you did this, I'll never forgive you so, for that, this so, kind of behavior. Uh, Alex, I, I understand where you're coming from, uh, okay. but, but it seems to me uh, you're letting these people have a, a lot of control over your life. I mean, forgiving is, is for you. It's say, I'm let, let go, I'm not going to let this transgression bug me anymore. At least that's part of it. It sounds to me like you're cre- I mean, creating a trap where you're just going to have to spend all your time being angry about what other people have done. What, 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 what do you think? Uh... Alex, I think it's an interesting position. I think it's a harsh position. And I think for reasons John's alluding to that, uh, if you don't ever forgive and you don't ever forget, certainly that it seems to me that if we're talking about uh, having some negative feelings of anger, resentment, uh, disappointment that are ongoing and uh, negative thoughts about other people, it seems to me that that is a harsh position to take. Uh, I I agree it's a position a person can take. I don't think it's a particularly healthy one would be my reaction to that. So, but Paul, let me, uh, is forgiveness... For the forgiver, for the forgivee, equal, equally both? I mean, who's it for? Well, I think it depends on the situation. Uh, suppose that somebody has, uh, has wrong, uh, that you've been, been wronged and, um, you, well, let's suppose you've committed a wrong and the person you've wronged just can't bring him or herself to forgive you. I think that in that case, there's something to be said for self-forgiveness because a person can be mired in guilt or remorse and that those kinds of emotions can become toxic and, and prevent the person from moving forward and achieving some semblance of happiness. And so sometimes forgiveness benefits the person who committed the wrong, uh, even in the absence of forgiveness from the other party. Uh, obviously, I think to, to forgive people is to let go of some of these negative feelings that can impede a person's progress in life. So the forgivee and the for, forgiven uh, can both forgive. I don't know about the equal measure. I don't know how we, how so, we ascertain so, that. So we've got an email that's kind of uh, 
at the opposite end of things from Alex. This is from Joanne. And, and she says, what if the wrongdoer has absolutely no remorse for what he has done? Should, or maybe we can say could, does it make sense for the victim to forgive him anyway? I mean, uh, from what we've been saying, maybe, maybe it does if the negative, negative emotions of carrying around that blame are too much. Uh, what do you think? Well, I think so. I think that there's a certain kind of therapeutic value in forgiving people, even if they're unrepentant. Uh, it depends on the individual, it seems to me. It depends on the extent to which a person is mired in negative feelings that were caused by being wronged. Uh, I think these are individual things that, See, this, that uh, people... Paul, this is where I think your definition is, is too narrow. He kind of misses the target. I think it can be healthy to let go of anger in all kinds of circumstances, but not, let's call it, deep moral indignation, which doesn't have... And it seems to me that an unrepentant person should not be forgiven. They should be held fully to account, right? They should pay the price. They should be moral exiles. It seems to me forgiveness, real forgiveness, and not, is not just letting go of moral anger. It's it's offering a moral exile an entry back into the moral community. So it's much more dynamic. It's not about me and my anger. It can have offering a moral exile an entry back into the moral community can have therapeutic effects. But I, I think you're focused on just the emotional part and not the sort of moral dynamic parts. And I, I so I think you missed your target. What do you think of that challenge to you? <laughs> well, I wonder. I, I of course don't think I've missed the target. But I, I think what you're talking about here is a slight different view that says that forgiveness must be tendered for uh, morally appropriate reasons. And if it isn't, then it's either just bad forgiveness or it's not forgiveness at all. Now, I resist the analysis that suggests that forgiveness must be based on morally appropriate reasons, such as that somebody has apologized or the wrongdoer has atoned. I think that that then makes forgiveness a virtue by definitional fiat, and I just don't think that it is. Well, lots of times, I guess this is uh, on your side of this issue, uh, lots of times we, we forgive people not because they do anything, but because we come to understand uh, what caused them to do what they did. Of course, pe- people uh, uh, in the free will determinism controversy sometimes pushes to the point where if we think everything is determined by past events, we forgive everything, give every forgive everybody everything. But leaving that aside, there is this idea, I think Spinoza said, to understand is to forgive, or somebody said that, somebody famous. Uh, so that kind of forgiveness where we say, well, you know, the more I knew about why this guy that stole my wallet came to be the kind of person who would steal my wallet... Uh, the more I was inclined to forgive him. Uh, that doesn't mean I doesn't, don't think he should be punished because punishment may be part of the social fabric that uh, you just can't go around excusing people for it and so forth, maybe do him some good. But, you know, for me, I forgive him. I mean, if I'd been brought up the way he was, I probably would go around stealing people's wallets too. What do you think of that, Paul, briefly? Well, I think that's a very interesting case, and I think that the, the way I would unpack that is that the greater the understanding you have of another person's motives and their circumstances, it, the easier it is to possibly um, mitigate the wrongdoing in your own mind, to see that, that not necessarily they were compelled to do it, but there were factors that perhaps you didn't see at first blush that either do some amount of excusing or um, at least make the wrong seem somewhat less serious. And of course, it can work the other way around, too. I mean, you may have your default assumption may that it person had some reason for doing what they 
did, and if you knew it, you might you might uh, understand them better, and then you find out, no, they actually don't. They're just an SOB that did it for no good reason but, at all. See, that sounds a little bit different from forgiving to me. That sounds like seeing, re-seeing the moral significance of what they did. What you thought was an intentional, brutal one act was something else, and so it's not really appropriate to see it in the same way that you did when you were full of moral rage or something like that. That doesn't quite sound like forgiving to me. What do you think, Paul, just really briefly? Yeah, I, I see your point, I Ken. I think that's an interesting observation that it does seem to stray from mainstream understandings of forgiveness. It's more as if you're moving toward a fuller picture of what happened and reassessing what actually happened and maybe even coming to the conclusion that what you thought was horrible wrong or a serious wrong really was quite something else. And that that doesn't any longer sound like a process of forgiving somebody, more a process of getting more facts or more information about what they did. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're asking what it takes to forgive and forget with Paul Hughes, author of What is Involved in Forgiving. In our final segment, we'll focus on the limits of forgiveness. When is it wrong to forgive? Are there some wrongs that can never be forgiven? Can forgiveness sometimes do more harm than good? Probing the limits of forgiveness when Philosophy Talk continues. Why is it that sorry seems to be such a hard word? We're a couple of Stanford professors, and we're not sorry about that. Today we're looking at forgiveness. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. And I'm Ken Taylor. (coughs) Our guest is Paul Hughes from the University of Michigan at Dearborn. Are there any acts that are simply unforgivable? Acts that no matter how sorry the wrongdoer might be, no matter how much better it might be to make the victim feel, just shouldn't be forgiven? So what do you think about those questions, Paul? Are there unforgivable acts? Well, I think that depends on the strength of the individual who's been wronged. As I've said before, I think that this uh, it's a matter of an act of will, whether somebody can try to forgive. I think that uh, I'm reminded here of a quote from, I believe, Desmond Tutu, that forgiveness is not for sissies, that it takes a lot of work, and that it takes even some courage. That, that, and that, that varies across individuals. I think that in principle, there's nothing that, can, uh, that, that isn't forgivable. But, of course, people have their own individual limitations. So let's, uh, let's uh, get some more uh, callers on the line. We have Dorothy from San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Dorothy. Thank you. This ties in with, I guess, what you're about to talk about. And it's, I've, I find that the word forgiveness is not really clear. The implication is that um, if one says, I forgive you, it means that the, it, the wrong doesn't matter and that one is expected to proceed as though the wrong never occurred. And, you know, I think of, like, major betrayals or, you know, child molesting or something like that. Well, you know, it occurred and it matters. And I think that needs to be addressed. And what would forgiveness, or maybe another word would be better for that kind of a circumstance? Well, right. Dorothy, you're asking a question, child molesters. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul, I mean, I think that's just an unforgivable. What would it be to forgive a child molester? What, so there must be acts that are, that by the very definition, is it, does it just follow from the very definition of forgiving that you can't forgive a child molester or what? 
Paul. No, I don't think that's the case. I, I, th- these are complicated wrongs, and they're, they're uh, catastrophic in many cases. And I think pe- some people are just not going to be able to forgive them. The victims of child molestation uh, have enormous psychological hurdles to overcome, and I'm not so confident that they'd be able to. But I don't see in principle a reason why that uh, you know, human beings do some amazing things, and, and they often have the strength to overcome some incredible wrongs that were done to them. And so I think as a matter of empirical fact that it depends on the strength of the individual who's been wronged. Now, now Paul's pushing kind of a um, uh, transgressee or victim-centered conception of forgiveness. <clears throat> and I do want to point out that, that the dictionary seems to be on his side. The dictionary says to forgive is to stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, flaw, or a mistake. So it, it, there's no parameter in there for the, the thing being unforgivable. Now, that, that, that leads, however, to a difficulty which uh, an emailer has just pointed out. This is Reggie Wilkinson. And he says, I'd like to hear the perspective on the role of forgiveness after there is no possibility of communication due to death or circumstance between the victim and perpetrator. It would seem to me that if the purpose of forgiveness is uh, radically different between the victim and perpetrator in this kind of case to the point where they almost deserve two different names. Well, I mean, just take the case of death. I mean, if, if, if it's a matter of, of, of the person who was transgressed ceasing to feel angry, then you say, well, he dies, he ceases to feel angry, so you're automatically forgiven. Or you might say, well, no, he was angry after his moment of death, so there's no longer any possibility of being forgiven. But don't we think there is some possibility of forgiveness even after the person uh, was against is dead? So is this kind of subjective, uh, victim-oriented definition of forgiveness totally adequate? Well, I'd, I'd be surprised if any definition is totally adequate and something as complicated as this. Um, and that's why philosophers get engaged with these kinds of things. But That's why we get I, paid a little the bit, big bucks. <clears throat> that's exactly right. <laughs> but I think the example is puzzling to me. I think that it's possible to forgive somebody who wronged you who is now dead. And obviously, I think that um, the person, people who are dead cannot do, forgive anybody um, uh, if, if forgiveness involves this sort of emotional transformation. Uh, I, I do think the question's a good one about um, it can't simply be the cessation of negative feelings. There are lots of ways in which people can go about extirpating anger or hatred, and those are not all going to count as forgiveness. So this is really complicated stuff, because on the one hand, it seems to me, the idea that forgiveness is about uh, uh, restoring moral community. Well, we do forgive dead wrongdoers, but we don't restore moral community with them. That seems mostly exactly. focused on us, right? But the idea that the dead who were wronged can't forgive. It goes back to an example we had talked about at the opening. It seems to me, you know, on, on behalf of my murdered brother, I could forgive the victim, not just for taking away my brother, but on behalf, I mean, the, the, the killer. On behalf of my brother, I could forgive the killer. I, do you think that's possible or not? I, John thought that, wasn't, that was a little puzzling. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's not at all possible. I think that third-party <laughs> forgiving of that sort is, uh, as I think John suggested, that people can be harmed or wronged via other people in their lives being wronged. So that if my wife and daughter are wronged, then I'm wronged in some obvious sense. And I can forgive the wrongdoer for myself, uh, for the harm that I received. But I can't do that work, it seems to me, for my wife or my daughter. They the, need to, I don't to know. know I don't know. Can't, if my daughter, I can't do that work uh, if they're around to do it themselves. But in the case when they're not around to do it themselves, who else speaks for them? Or are they just well, voiceless? It, 
I mean, I can't. I, I, I speak on behalf out of a deep identification with them that you know. We, I oh, I think it's, pers- it's possible, of course, to say that I believe my wife would have forgiven you, but that's not forgiving somebody. That's saying that you know I have good reasons to think she would have if she were in a position to do so, and I think that's a very different thing. Well, now when, in in the intro when we brought this up, we we went into self forgiveness, uh, and and we do seem to talk about forgiving oneself. So I. Let's say I'm like St. Augustine and I broke into a pear orchard when I was a kid and I felt bad about it ever since. And one day I decide, well, it's time to, to forgive myself for that. Now, am I just forgiving myself for the harm that breaking into the pear orchard did to me? It doesn't seem right. quite right to look at it that way. And even if the victim doesn't forgive you, you can still legitimately forgive yourself. It seems to me that that's possible, though I think the transformations are very different. They're all... Uh, in, in the case of self-forgiving, the drama takes place within the individual himself as, uh, as, uh, as the wrongdoer and as uh, the victim uh, in some sense. And that's a different, different dynamic than interpersonal forgiving. Well, it's but not wait a minute. So wait a minute. I don't, but I don't see how your two views go together. I can't per- forgive on behalf. Only the wronged party can forgive, you said. But if I forgive myself, I'm not the wrong party. And you said I can forgive myself for something I've done to somebody else, even though they don't forgive me. How do those, how do those two aspects of your view go together? Well, I think it's consistent to say that uh, people can uh, forgive themselves for wrongs that they've done to themselves. For example, straying from a diet, refraining from quitting of, after making a, of smoking after com- making a commitment to do so or even just uh, uh, falling short of some moral ideal that one is trying to achieve. Uh, And then one, I think one can forgive for having wronged other people um, in the sense that one can move past and needs to move past for for prudential reasons, perhaps some guilt or uh, other feeling that is debilitating. Ron in Palo Alto wants to join this conversation. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ron. Hello, hello. So what's your comment or question? Well, a little story. Um, I didn't speak to my sister for seven years. And, um, and it's an, kind of an interesting thing, and I forgave her. And, uh, and how do I describe this? I think you guys are intellectualizing and making table talk about forgiveness, when in actuality it is an intensely emotional thing that's very hard to do. I've had anger that's, that is so intense that it distru- disrupts my life, and that has had it gone on for some time. Now, what I'm trying to say is the forgiveness in part, in large part, is for you because that, ins- that anger that is just eating you up inside is wrecking your life. So you have to give, forgive, not for the other individual, but for yourself. Oh, Ron, I, I, I understand your point, and you're making a, a deep point. And I actually want to amend something I said. Look, Paul, I really do believe you've missed something. I do think... Uh, forgiveness can be morally required in a sense, well, at least deserved. But here's another thing. Even though it's deserved and often you can demand the things you you deserve, you can't demand forgiveness right so it can be deserved but not it's not demandable and 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 ron's put his finger on why it can't be demanded because it's always going to take some in, or often going to take some intense psychological journey some very personal very intense psychological journey and the victim who puts you in this position even if he's done everything he can or she can to make it right or blah, blah, blah still cannot demand of you that uh that uh you forgive so i think it can be deserved and you can launch this journey. You may not be able to reach it. It cannot be demanded. So what do you think about that? 
Well, I, I think that's a, an interesting wrinkle on uh, on the notion of dessert. I mean, I tend to think of dessert as a justice-based concept in which people have rights and they're entitled to certain things. And that's the notion, I think, that that's not really compatible with forgiveness as at least as a gift, as something that's up to the wrongdoer to proffer to the person who, who wronged them. Um, I'm wondering if your notion here of dessert violates the well, there assumption all kinds of notions talked of about before. I don't think dessert right. is well, just the, the, a, ju- ju- dessert injustice. I mean, it's not just a distribution of rights. I mean, I deserve... Well, res- then clarify your notion of dessert, I because deserve it seems re- to me maybe d- violating the Otten Plies can <laughs> uh, uh, stricture that we talked about earlier. Well, that's why I said that's the, that's the puzzling part. It's something that can be deserved but it's not demandable by the person who deserves it, which makes it different from most things that I deserve. Most things I deserve, if you withhold them from me, I can demand it of you. But I agree, so there's a complicated thing. That says, that's because forgiveness is really complicated because of what Ron was saying. It's psychologically exactly. demanding. We've got, a, we've got an email that adds some uh, kind of a factual basis to some of these issues. Uh, this is from Meredith, and um, he or she says, As a defense attorney, I've often, I have learned about a small proportion of relatives of those killed through criminal wrongdoing who do decide to forgive. They talk about it as a daily practice. After time, many contact the wrongdoer. The prize for them is an easing of the hurt, or so they report. Most victims, most victims' relatives want several things from the perpetrator, acknowledgement, explanation of what happened, and genuine apology. This can sometimes be achieved through the aforementioned contact. So this idea of forgiveness being not just a one, one-time decision but an ongoing project is, is uh, I think, interesting. What do you think, uh, briefly, Paul? Well, yeah, I think that is a very good point. A good friend of mine recently reminded me that forgiveness is often a work in progress, that we sort of inch our way to it, but may not be you know, a straight line. It may not simply be an act of will. It may take a good deal of time to accomplish. Right. So, I mean, so to, to, to uh, Ron, do you have any advice? How, I mean, I know you're a philosopher, not a therapist. Well, you've thought about this a lot. Do you have any advice about how to uh, you know, help people get past the point of not being able to forgive to the point of being able to forgive? Is there any, anything philosophers well, you're right. have to I'm, add not, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I could ask my wife about that. But, um, you know, I, th- I, think that, uh, I, I think that often enough you need to just talk with people. I, th- I think that if you can get a better understanding from them of what they did and what they thought they were doing, that that can at least open the door to trying to have a, a greater understanding and, and maybe ease some of the, the bad feelings that are occasioned by being wronged. So on that note, Paul, I'm, I'm going to thank you for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Well, you're welcome. It's been fun. Our, our guest has uh, been Paul Hughes. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. He's author of What is Involved in Forgiving? So, John, you have one quick final thought, really final, quick final thought there? Yeah, if you're going to wrong someone, pick someone who doesn't hold a grudge so that there's a possibility that they'll forgive you. Uh, that's a practical lesson I've, I've learned from the conversation. <laughs> yeah, pick somebody who doesn't hold a grudge. I still believe, you know, we've just scratched the surface here. I still believe there are unforgivable things. And I do think Paul sort of missed the bucket. There's more, it's more morally complicated. But, you know, this is a rich topic. And our conversation will continue on our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is, as always, cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. And you know what? You can follow us on Twitter, and you can find out more by visiting our very active, ever, ever ever-growing Facebook page as well. 
Now, Ken, if I'm right, you've already started off us off on the blog with the blog on this. Uh, You're wrong. Topic. You'll oh, have I'm to wrong. forgive me, but I will uh, start it off I, very I'm soon. Sorry, I can't <laughs> forgive you. That's part of the deal. Anyway, you can also sign up to get the free weekly podcast of Philosophy Talk at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now it's about time to forgive but not forget Ian Scholes. He's the 62nd philosopher, and he is now going to transgress the speed limit of thought. Ian Scholes, in recent years, the concept of forgiveness has been taken up by universities with forgiveness institutes founded, studies funded, and conclusions reached that forgiveness makes the forgiver healthier. And probably they're forgiven, too. Forgiveness is a stress reducer. This is all well and good, but it kind of takes a start out of traditional morality. There, you might recall, only God forgives. All you have to do is accept, and all of your sins are forgiven, which I always found a bit flawed. I mean, theoretically, you can go out and kill a dozen people, then accept Jesus and be forgiven. That doesn't seem fair somehow. Anyway, now forgiveness has committees and bureaucracies, and now everybody's on the forgiveness bandwagon. Self-help gurus even encourage us to forgive ourselves, which seems to defeat the point, doesn't it? It's one thing if a South African forgives the person who murdered her family. That's an act that's both startling and humbling. But to forgive yourself for, I don't know, eating a bag of potato chips when you swore you wouldn't? Not much pity or terror there. And what about me? Because it's all about me. I got in a lot of fist fights when I was a boy, and yet I hold no resentment for those who beat me. Some of them became my friends. Some of them I later beat up myself. I've had girlfriends break up with me. I with them. I hold no resentment towards any of them as well. The girlfriend's attitudes may vary. The point is, in the scheme of things, my life is really too mundane to go around asking for forgiveness or bestowing it. Impulse and anger have led to relatively horrible consequences, yet those can be both forgivable and or forgettable. What's not are the little things. It's the little people that haunt my stunted forgiveness node. Thoughtless remarkers say one thing, do another, sandbaggers, backstabbers, rumor mongers, behind your backers, butter wouldn't melt on their mouthers, bad mouthers, take the credit, do no workers, nosy parkers, shirkers, bald-faced liars, sneaks, snipes, the pointlessly rude, blowhards, bullies, the shiftless, the smug, the veiled insulters, the claptrappers, whiners, nitpickers, loons, and louts. All of these remain unforgiven in my book, which admittedly is a small book, much smaller than the Bible, or even the bound minutes from the last meeting of the International Forgiveness Council. Still, in that little book, they all might be forgiven, had I forgiveness in me, but I'm one of those hold of grudgers, which is in itself probably unforgivable. I gotta go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 62nd Philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2011. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation and from various groups at Stanford University and from the Friends of Philosophy Talk and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. <laughs>